Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today two esteemed guests that I had the pleasure of seeing at the ELC conference most recently, and they were talking about the topic we're going to go into a deeper dive today, and that's their Learn Lab that they've come up with. But I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Yvonne Colgrove and Dr. Steve Jernigan. Thanks so much for coming on, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. This is exciting. Yeah. If you don't mind, let's go and just do a quick dive into your academic journey and how it's led you to where you are today. Yvonne, if you don't mind starting, go ahead and let us know what that looked like. My academic journey took a long winding road to actually get into academics. I was a clinician for many years and I did inpatient rehab for a number of years, moved my way up into administrative positions and whatnot. And I started my own company at that point in time with a partnership. And I came to a crossroads where I needed to choose one way or the other. And I decided to get out of my company and I went into education. I started a local PTA program and uh, quite quickly found out I knew nothing about education. I was always told I was a great clinical instructor. You should become a teacher. And here we go is, oh, this is nothing like clinical education. So I, I learned by the School of Hard Knocks, we did become accredited. And in that process, I figured out I really need to advance my education. And then what was available to me then locally, since I had a family, was a PhD in basic science. So I actually got to run lab rats and do cell studies and all of that kind of stuff, which is totally different from educational research. And then I was hired as a DCE here at KU because this is where I got my PhD in basic science. I was quite lucky in the fact that a PT faculty member had a joint appointment with the Department of Cell Biology. So they recruited me to come to KU. And that was back in 2004. So I've been here quite a long time. I was originally hired as a DCE and I taught administration courses and we had a post-professional program. I taught administration ethic courses in that program as well. And from there, I've been in and out as a, a primary DCE. I've always been involved with clinical education. So I come with the lens of clinical education into educational research. 
But along the way, we have a wonderful faculty here and we've developed a lot of relationships. And with the growth of our program, I am just now functioning as a DCE and doing more educational research. I had done some clinical research in yoga before, but I've really shifted towards educational research because that's my primary function within the department and my primary concern about our students. So that's how I got here. Yeah, I very much relate to your journey because I was clinical for 16 years before diving into my ED and teaching. And I actually finished my ED in 2018, then went back to clinical because I was so burnt out on my dissertation and everything. I was like, I'm going back to work. So I was clinical again for two more years before COVID hit. And then eventually I transitioned back into academia. But it's surprising to me. That was the one shocking thing. And people had told me and I just was like, ah, it's no big deal. But the transition from clinical to teaching is a complete job shift. It's a complete change of occupation. It really is. And I just thought, oh, I know the stuff I've been working for years. I'll just teach it. It'll be no problem. But there is an art to teaching. And I think it took me going through an ED program to really learn that. I can appreciate that. Steve, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you're at. I'm sure I'd be happy to. Again, I can identify with what you're sharing as well, Scott. I think teaching is, many of us assume teaching can be done, but we're not really trained as clinicians to teach. And so it's been a journey for all of us, I'm sure, in academia to learn how to teach effectively and well. So my journey started, I actually graduated from the University of Kansas Medical Center, where both Yvonne and I currently are back in 2001 with my master's of physical therapy. And at the time, I went in the clinic, loved the clinic, was out in the clinic full-time for about three years and always knew I had a knack or an interest in teaching. My mom's a first grade teacher and so there's teaching in the family. And and so I did some, I helped teach a little bit on the side with some of my colleagues from the program that I graduated from. And in that process, in addition to working with patients where you get to educate patients about their dysfunction or the diagnosis and also how to improve that diagnosis, I just realized that teaching is something I absolutely love to do. And after some kind of hard thinking and really thinking, okay, do I really want to switch back to considering an academic career versus a clinical career? I explored the option and realized at the time that getting a PhD was probably the best route at the time to become an educator and so in a PT program. And so I started that journey in 2004 and continued that journey for a while, about seven and a half years, maybe eight years total to get the PhD. But I did that here in the department at the University of Kansas Medical Center. But my PhD actually wasn't clinical research. So I looked at fall risk assessment in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, which again is not education research, but during the PhD process, you develop a lot of the skills needed to do the research that can be translated very easily in some capacity to education research. But during that time, I was a GTA for a while and actually pretty consistently most every semester and again, really enjoyed the teaching piece. And in 2007, the department asked me to come on full time as a faculty person while continuing the PhD, which I did. So 2007 is when I started as a full time faculty person and just love teaching. It's my passion. It's what I always wanted to do. In fact, When I took the position, I said, now I want you to understand, I only want to teach. I don't want to do any education research or I don't want to do research. I'm going to finish my PhD, but my focus is really teaching. And 
it's funny how things change because over time I realized, yes, I love teaching, but I also love research and the inquiry that comes with research. And so about eight years ago, I started to dabble in interprofessional education. And that is really where I got my education research start. I'm currently the co-lead for our Center for Interprofessional Education Practice and Research here at the Med Center. I'm the co-lead for our Assessment and Scholarship Committee. So I really cut my teeth in education research and interprofessional education. And eventually that translated to just appreciating education research in a completely different way than I ever expected to. And then that led me to where I am. My role in the department is the director of essentially the director of academics. And so I get to work with students who are matriculating through the program in all different capacities, working on the day-to-day function of our program. But in that process, I get to see where there are potential opportunities to elevate learning. And along with my colleagues in the Learn Lab, we've definitely had a chance to target that a little bit more completely. So that's kind of my story. I love the clinic, but I definitely am passionate about teaching. Yeah. So my dad was an English teacher for 30 some odd years on Long Island, hence the name, right? F. Scott Fioli, named after F. Scott Fitzgerald. But nice. I sat in on many of his classes, high school English classes, and I was like, I'm never teaching. These kids are jerks. I don't want to deal with this. And now come full circle, here I am teaching. But I was saying earlier that I I was a rote memorizer. I was just straight up rote memorization, read it, learn it, memorize it. And that was it. For an English major transitioning to physical therapy, that was not an easy task for me. So I wanted no part of teaching. And then as I learned how to learn through the ED program, I was like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be done, which then led me to then, okay, how do we teach to that learning, which then got me more and more interested. And now I actually do enjoy the educational research side of things. I'm still not sold 100% on the research, but I feel like if we're going to make an impact and a difference, we need to learn and understand how to teach and learn, especially in the healthcare realm. You know, a lot of this podcast was started on that. You know, I had a very bumpy ride through my PT program and it wasn't their fault. You know, it was trying to fit one of those round pegs into a square hole. English major into PT was not going to be easy. So I, I totally understand. And now, luckily, there is a lot of or a lot more educational research going on. But again, it's hard to find funding for. It's one of those things that I'm becoming more and more of an advocate for sure. So Let's dive into it. Let's just get right into the nuts and bolts here of the think tank, if you will, the Learn Lab. Tell us about how it started. How did it come about? Sure. The Learn Lab is, it's quite interesting. It actually started out as a group of six physical therapy faculty who weren't doing the more traditional research, but we really kind of noticed in our different roles and as educators, some some challenges that the students were experiencing that led to us questioning, you know, what are we doing as educators that could impact this? And so we actually came together almost like a teaching support group where the six of us came together and started talking about, hey, how can we, what are we seeing as far as patterns? How can we improve those patterns? Yvonne, as the director of ClinEd, actually, Yvonne, do you want to speak to kind of what we are seeing clinically? Sure. So I love that I had a group of people that listened to what the students found as challenges in the clinic. And we came up with four areas that I've seen repeatedly. It's problems in communication, problems in professionalism, problems with clinical reasoning, and problems with what we call adaptability. And those were really tripping students up in the clinic. And how were we addressing those when they were in the didactic program, seemed like there was a gap there. And really, we were taking this all in as how can we be better? We didn't even start as research focus. It's like, how can we have a better delivery of what we do and have a better product of the 
students that we have. So we met monthly. We started realizing that we don't know much about learning theories and teaching theories. So we immersed ourselves in hours and hours of reading. And Steve's so great because he had it very structured for us. We're going to read about these theories this time and discuss as a group. And we did this for months. And as time went on, it, we kind of identified our gap and is what can we do to determine that these students or ensure that these students are clinically ready to go out on their full-time clinical rotations. And we were discussing those four areas and coming around how to address those four areas. And in that process, it's interesting. Thanks, Yvonne. In that process, we did spend about six months really just steeping ourselves in the education literature because we realized we were never taught to teach and we wanted to understand how to do it better, kind of the theory supporting excellent education from the faculty lens, but also from the learner lens. And so we actually connected with our Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of Kansas Lawrence, and they recommended a great book that we spent more time in called How Learning Works. And it's a great book. It's basically the subtitle is Seven Research-Based Principles for Smart Teaching. And so that book helped us to inform our teaching but it didn't, doesn't really necessarily talk about education research. And so that's where, just from an inquisitive perspective, as Yvonne shared, we came together and developed a large research question for the six of us. How can we best prepare our students? Number one, how can we assess them? And then how can we intervene or prepare them to be effective before they go on to their full-time clinical rotations? And so that kind of became a large group project. And eventually we're like, you know what? we're functioning like a research lab. Why don't we go ahead and call it a research lab? And fortunately, we've had excellent support from our chair of our department, who um, was fully on board with us developing an education research lab, which of course was not very common at the time, if at all, at least in physical therapy. And that's when we came up with the Learn PT Lab at the time, which was basically the six of us physical therapy faculty coming together on a monthly basis, sometimes twice a month, to engage in questions around this primary research question. But it's been interesting to see how the six of us individually, while we had some research interests before me for IPE, Yvonne for clinical education, we all now have developed our own education research agendas individually, while also having this collective kind of goal as a group. And so that's been really neat to see. We actually have two of our Learn Lab members, Stacia Trashinsky brown and Mildred Aligbo who both are pursuing their PhDs right now since they have been a part of the education research lab. Not because of that, but since we've come together as a lab, they've pursued that. And then Dr. Jason Rucker also has his PhD in a clinical area. And then Scarlett Morris, who was one of the original founders of the Learn PT Lab, has her OCS and is heavily involved with research, but has not yet decided to pursue a PhD at this time. And so it's interesting how we each have our own individual journeys, but I think Part of our individual journeys has very much been influenced by the presence of this Learn PT Lab at the time. Yeah, I think we've been able to get more accomplished. And since we meet monthly, we're accountable for what we're doing. And it really has led to more research work because I've connected with Jason on ICE stuff. I've connected with Scarlett on something she was doing previously. And that's leading to more productivity for all of us. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like a great starting point for any university, but especially in the PT realm, because again, like you said, we aren't taught necessarily too much on the research aspect. Like you have a course maybe on your evidence-based practice and evidence-based research, maybe some statistics, but 
then you've got to go out and practice and become a PT. It's just like a business management, right? We get a course maybe in admin and stuff, but then when you become a clinic manager or a clinic director or director of rehab, we're not taught necessarily how to run a business or do that. So it's things that we really have to take on ourselves. So I love that. What does it look like? What does the Learn Lab look like as far as just logistics? You meet monthly. How is it structured? What does that monthly meeting look like? Sure. So our monthly meetings are probably fairly comparable to what you might see in other research labs that are not education research labs. So we start off with any updates from the team. And just a quick side note is in 2021, we decided to expand our Learn PT lab to include two of our athletic training faculty who are also in our department. So now we have an interprofessional lab. And at that time, because we wanted to be more inclusive, we changed the name from the Learn PT lab, which is was just the PT faculty to the Learn Lab, which includes two AT faculty and then six physical therapy faculty. And so I just wanted to comment on that just so you have some additional yep. context for our lab. But the lab meetings themselves, we really start out with updates. We talk about just the different things that are going on for each of us if needed. Then we move into any sort of specific agenda items that you would have for any research meeting. We talk about the Learn PT project that we talked about earlier. We'll engage any specific upcoming presentations. We'll talk about who's doing what, when, how are we facilitating that? Does anybody need specific support as a research lab member? We also talk about, we spend time during each meeting, either with, we call at a research highlight where one lab member kind of talks more specifically about their research and gives us all an update as to what's going on. Sometimes we'll actually spend that time instead of doing a research highlight, we'll spend some time talking through a research article. So one of us comes across a research article that looks really good. And then so we'll send that out to folks and then have a dialogue about that research article, almost like a journal club. And so it kind of morphs and kind of adjusts to what is most present at the time and what's needed. But it's been really fun to have a structure like that. And then we always, of course, wrap up with kind of the action items that we need to target and when the next meeting will be. Usually it's once a month. But again, depending on our seasons for the lab. Sometimes we've met twice a month because we had a lot we wanted to tackle. Sometimes we shifted back to just once a month. And right now we're at once a month and it seems to be working really well, but it's been fun to go through that process. Does that give you some insight, Scott, as to our- Yeah, for sure. One of the things I love about educational research is that it's pretty accessible to students. One of the things, when I was a student, it was a master's program back then, and we had opportunities to to help faculty with some of their research here and there as a graduate assistant type thing. But in our current situation with the DPT program now, it's a little bit different and it's a little bit more difficult to ha- have the students, especially for our program, which is a flex program, to be on campus and be helping out with some of the biomechanical research and running research and things that that are really need people to be hands-on and running labs. So educational research gives students a pretty good opportunity. And that's one thing we found with the National Honor Society was our students were always coming up just a little bit short in the research category. It was hard to find research opportunities for them. So you guys have some students helping out here and there as well. Tell me a little bit about that. We do. We have evidence-based research courses that students enroll in, and we are just part of the palette that those students could choose from. But I absolutely use the students to help their learning as well as figure out what that process looks like and what a research question, how that's structured, and move through the entire research project. And I could do, if it's a large project, they'll do parts of it. But generally, these smaller clinical education projects, 
the student gets from beginning to end. And in fact, I had one student presenting at combined sections on predictive factors associated with um, geographical location. So they get some great learning out of it and we get some great assistance out of it. We've also have a PhD program and we are hoping in the future that we'll have a PhD student in our lab, but they rotate through labs. So we are able to take anybody interested or trying to figure out what they're doing for a semester and put them on one of our many projects that we have so they could dip their toe into educational research. Yeah, I would say probably at least four or five of the eight lab members always have students working on projects that they're working on that are education research related. And so I did for quite a few years related to IPE since I helped guide our campus-wide interprofessional education efforts. And so that was a great opportunity for them to get a sense of what education research is all about. But as Yvonne mentioned, it's been really neat. Probably almost every semester we've had students rotate from our PhD program through our lab, which is a part of their kind of education process. They wrote to rotate through different research labs early in their PhD program. But the really neat thing is it's really important for these PhD students, many of whom are international, and they plan to return to their home country to actually teach in PT programs back home. And so it really has been neat to see them really be interested in education research and to see what it looks like from a kind of a physical therapy in the United States kind of perspective. But then, as Yvonne mentioned, we would love to at some point have a PhD student who is focused on education research within our PhD program. So that's exciting. Yeah, for sure. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Tell me a little bit about if there were a group of faculty members or a core group of members or a university that was looking to start something like this, like an educational learn lab, what are some tips or tricks or tactics or things that you learned along the way that you feel like may be helpful to implementing something like this? That's a great question, Scott. We've had a lot of folks ask us that because since we started this and had a few presentations back in 2018 and 2019, some folks were like, oh, that sounds great. And it's been neat to hear that there are quite a few universities that have started something similar and even some labs that are kind of across universities as well since kind of this conversation's begun, which has been really neat to see. I think some of the key factors that I think we have found to be helpful, and Yvonne, feel free to chime in as well, would be it's been really helpful for us to have support from the department, meaning our chair has been a tremendous support for our lab. We received an internal grant with from our department early on in the Learn Lab existence, which was really helpful. But also as a department, when we did some strategic planning a few years back, 
our chair, along with the Learn PT Lab at the time, really wanted to see if this education research could become a pillar of our department's research agenda. And so there are two primary research agenda in our department. One relates to rehabilitation and the other is education research. And so we have tremendous departmental support and buy-in for this education research lab. And so I feel like that, if you can get support from leadership within your department, it's really helpful, not just for the lab, but it also, for example, allowed for both Yvonne and I to attend Gamer, which is grantsmanship and mentorship and education research, which has been really helpful. And without that support, we were able to bring all that information back to the lab, but without that leadership support and Dr. Patty Cluding, it would be a lot more difficult to do what we're doing. So I encourage folks to look at what, how can they get leadership buy-in? How can they engage their leadership in their department to really support their education research? The other thing that Yvonne and I talked about was protected faculty time. Like you would ask for any other research, this research takes a lot of time. Not a lot of resources outside of time, but time is a huge factor. And so protected faculty time, I think, is important to consider as well. Yvonne, what else? I, I totally agree with Steve. I think the primary thing was leadership support and having ongoing conversations and thinking outside the box, having some innovative thinking about how we may be able to address moving the research forward with limited funding resources. And again, protected time is is huge, but there's also a personal aspect where you have to think protected time as well. So you block off your calendar routine time in the schedule to do your educational research, because oftentimes I find in my role, it could get lost easily. So if that means I'm taking it off the calendar because I'm dealing with something at that point in time in clinical education, I put it somewhere else on the calendar or I partner with somebody who I'm maybe doing the research with, or maybe we have different projects. I partner with somebody to have some accountability to meet at those times to actually work on educational research. So there's the um, institutional aspect as well as your individual responsibility aspect. It's, yeah, time is huge. You don't realize when you go into, or at least I didn't realize going into academia that only 50% of my time was for teaching. The other 50% was for, I had student mentoring I had to do. I had community outreach I had to do and service to the community, service to the university, and then research. There were all these other avenues that I didn't even know I had to be responsible for. And so how do you find time to do all those things when they're expected and required of you? Yeah, one thing I would like to add to you is I think a lot of us as education research oftentimes start just doing research on an island by yourself, right? You have a, a small project that you're interested in learning more about. So you implement it in your classroom, you do some assessment and you maybe look at some interventions and then matriculate through that way. But I think for us, what really was important was we started the dialogue. So if you have someone that you have shared research interests with, start that dialogue just about, maybe it's the research interests themselves, but then Think about how that can expand to a partnership or, you know, maybe there's three people. Um, maybe it's not just at your institution or your program in your department. Maybe it's folks across your campus in different programs. And so, for example, on our campus, we know there's a huge group of education researchers, right, between our school of nursing, our school of medicine and the school of health professions. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we started that dialogue with the entire larger community. COVID had an effect and we had to pull back because we all were running back to our programs to manage our programs. but 
during that time, I think, again, it was that starting that conversation is really helpful. And so I think that would be a really great first step. Just start the dialogue with someone that you have research interests in common with, whether or not it's in your own profession or another profession. I also have another suggestion. Become involved in task force and those kind of things that are of your interest, because that leads to some type of productivity and maybe a manuscript or two. But it also connects you with some very valuable mentors that you could have. I've, I've done work with Christine McCallum and Peggy Gleason. I've learned so much just through that task force process that has enriched my education in educational research. Also through Gamer, we found that these educational research giants that are out there are accessible. And they really want to promote educational research and very willing to, in their retirement or in their busy schedules to carve out time to just at least talk to you about your ideas. Um, so don't be afraid to reach out to people just to ask. The worst they'll say is no. Yeah, let's touch on that for a minute. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because I'm going to actually have an upcoming interview, I think, with Richard Siegel and Gail Jensen on Gamer. But I would like you guys to talk about just what Gamer is and how it helped relate to this Learn Lab and really get things off the ground with it? Yeah, so Gamer is an excellent opportunity. If you don't have the funding for it from your department or that mentorship opportunity, then Mini Gamer is another great place to start, which is usually held at most of our ELC and CSM conferences. I think it's not for CSM this year, but definitely perhaps for ELC this year. But um, Gamer really is, it was a fairly intensive workshop. So very intensive, three to four days. And you dive really deeply into education research. And the great thing about that is, Yvonne can probably speak to this too, but we were able to take our PhD background in, in research design and kind of translate it over to education research. But you have such tremendous mentorship during Gamer to help kind of help you think about your thinking, but then also to change how you think about your research questions. And so that is so critical when it comes to education research, but then also for specifically, that's looking at how can your research become fundable? So it's really looking at not only changing how you think about your research, but also thinking about how you can make your research fundable to allow for a larger project that would facilitate larger outcomes that facilitate bigger change for our profession when it comes to education research. But the great thing is both Yvonne and I were able to take what we learned from Gamer and bring it back to our lab. And so we've been having conversations since I returned and I forget, I think it might have been 2019. I always forget which year it was, maybe 2018. Every time we come back, we have additional conversations with our lab mates about education research. We share some tips that we learned. And it's really, I think, helped everyone in the lab move forward with their education research in a way that's probably more effective than what we would have done without having gone to Gamer. Yvonne, what are your thoughts? From what we experienced in Gamer, we, Steve and I, are actually planning a mini Gamer for our Learn Lab this summer. So we're going to spend a half day, full day, just diving into their research questions, asking them the similar questions our mentors asked us and trying to help them refine their research question and make it a little bit more refined because I think we all want to solve the world's problem. I, I went into Gamer, I'm going to do all this, but that would have lasted me 20 
plus years trying to answer that question, refining the research question that can become fundable. Well, let's talk about that then. What is next for the Learn Lab? What do you guys see coming down the pipe? What do you guys see in the future? What are your big, hairy, audacious goals for the Learn Lab? Would you, what would you like to see? I probably would should start with sharing kind of our mission as a lab is to be a leader in education research across the health professions. And our vision is to inspire exemplary healthcare education through impactful, innovative, and collaborative education research. And so I think that gives the big picture. Like we want to really impact health professions education in physical therapy specifically, but also in athletic training with our AT colleagues in our lab. We want to do research that's impactful. We want to do research that's innovative, but also collaborative. Collaboration really is key to education research to do it effectively. And so big picture, just from a kind of a, a simple answer, that would be what I would say. But I think Yvonne and I, go and share, Yvonne, what we talked about this morning about what we envision. Our first step is to get a PhD student to help us with the projects, but we are moving into that interprofessional piece, and we would like to include more programs, like perhaps the OT program and the speech-language program, who may be interested in this and serve as a resource for other DPT programs in the future, and potentially a collaborative resource for other DPT programs in the future so we could keep growing the educational research. It's all about moving towards making our students better students and us better teachers. Yeah, rising tide raises all ships, right? And if we can share this information out and get good ideas out there, I think it's only going to help the profession as far as teaching and learning. So thank you guys for being leaders in that and taking the charge. We have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change? How would you change it and why? Uh, you're making me pick one, right? Oh, you can do multiple. We'll, we'll allow. We, the more, the better. I kind of go down. It depends on what's happening at the time. But I think my overall one would be we need to shift to evidence-based teaching. We've been in the practice of evidence-based practice and research, and that has really elevated our profession in doing that and improve patient care, improve PT practice in engaging in evidence-based practice. So I would like to see the same elevation in evidence-based teaching. Perhaps I know there are some uh, Eli and those kind of things that help with that. There are a couple of programs out there that are focused at, on educational postdocs and those kind of things. But it can be really simple, like starting with the student evals each semester and going to research to see how I could improve that. And if people aren't prompted to do that, then you could do that as part of your annual performance review. It's those simple things and capturing times that it, we should be having the conversation. So that that's my answer. Yeah, I like that because really we use the term evidence-based with, you know, uh, practice for sure. We want our students to go out and practice evidence-based, and yet we really have to even bring it back to the evidence-based teaching, which then becomes the backbone and the foundation for everything we do as our job is teaching and learning. Sage on a stage just isn't cutting it anymore. What do we do and why? How, how do we show that's not cutting it, but here is what, what is cutting it? And we have a nice template that was just put out in the Vision for Excellence in PT Education, that culmination of the educational leadership partnership that tells us exactly what we need to be researching. Well, also. yeah, if you look at kind of medicine, you look at nursing, they have excellent education research. And I think PT as a profession, we're fairly young as it comes to education research, but we have 
amazing individuals like Gail Jensen, Stephen Chesbro, a number of different folks who really are pushing that conversation forward in a way that's needed. And if we need to change education, I have two now that you said we can have more than one. One would be for every instructor, every faculty person, everyone who's teaching in physical therapy education to think about what they're doing and how to engage that from a scholarly teaching perspective and how to disseminate those teaching efforts, right? How can you change what you're doing with your day-to-day into research that's helpful? But I would also, before you just go out and do that, I would think about how that research ties to the national agenda and those pillars that are important for education research for our profession. And so if you go back to that, that vision of excellence, in PT education, it really lays out what's needed. And so really thinking about how your efforts can be turned into research that ties to our national research agenda related to education research. The second thing I would do, because I'm passionate about it right now, is really thinking about, so it's down the river a little bit from what you and Yvonne talked about. So not only effective teaching, thinking about evidence-based teaching, but thinking about how to elevate learning. So that focus on learning is becoming really important. I think you think about competency-based education, those domains that are currently being established by ACAP, the conversations that are taking place. I know you had some conversations with some folks from WashU, Stephen Ambler and Gammon Earhart. So... I think we need to elevate learning, not just teaching, right? So making sure that our teaching is actually having the impact we want it to have. But I also feel like important to that learning is to really look at elevating learning in the context of the whole person. So our students, yes, they're students, but there's so much more to their lives than being a student. And I think as instructors, as faculty, as program directors or leadership we have to really think about how do we support our learners towards elevating that learner, right? Yeah, so a, lot, a lot to unpack there, right? Because as a clinician, you want to take the patient and look at them holistically, right? And treat them as a whole individual. Now, as a professor or a teacher, you want to do the same thing with your students and approach them holistically, right? It's definitely a, a larger task than just, uh, again, getting up there and spouting out some PowerPoint presentations. Yeah, Scott, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that I feel like if we engage our learners as whole persons, I think that also models what we want them to do with their patients, engaging the patient as a whole person. And so I do, I feel like that's so important. And I think COVID has elevated the need to really engage our students and support them effectively to learning and outcomes. But to me, that's becoming more prominent. I'm currently in the APTA Fellowship for Higher Education Leadership. And a part of my primary project is looking at student support and how to do that effectively. Because I feel like our students on a, you know, our future, right? You know, as it relates to our profession, but also for our own individual care as we get older. And selfishly speaking, I really think we need to engage the students more holistically and really support them in their learning. And if we don't, then the learning's not going to be as effective or as good, perhaps. And so it's, like you said, it's a lot to unpack, but I think it's so important for us to do that for our students. Well, and to take it another level, we've got to put the ego aside a little bit and just realize that, yeah, what we think is important and what our specialty is and what we want to focus on may not align with that national need for what what is actually having to be learned so that they can pass the exam so that they can become better clinicians. So I think it's also important for us to realize, yeah, we may go out there and want to teach what we want to teach because we're interested in it and we think it's 
important, right? But we have to stay rooted and anchored to that national need of, hey, what's nice to know versus uh, what they, you know, need to know versus, you know, what's nuts to know and what's too much. I get it. I think it's uh, some great points there. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time and for just coming on here and educating our audience into the uh, Learn Lab and educational research in general. Where can people reach out to you and find you if they just have more questions or want to follow up about what you guys are up to these days? Sure. We do have a website for a lab like most research labs, right? So if folks want to see specifically the LearnPT lab, you can go to learnpt.kumc.edu. And it takes you to each of the individual's bios in the lab. But also, that's, again, a subsidiary of our Learn Lab as a whole, which also includes the AT um, faculty. And so if you back up from that kind of Learn PT Lab page, you'll see the entire Learn Lab page. But also, of course, you can reach out to, I'm sure, myself or Yvonne via email at any point in time, which can be accessed through the website. But also, we actually will be doing a presentation at CSM in, in February. Basically, it's called Developing in a Community of Education Researchers, really focused on how we did that and what you can learn more about kind of our process and so forth. And so that'd be a great opportunity. I think it's Friday from 8 to 10 a.m. at CSM. And so we're looking forward to sharing some of our lessons learned like we did a little bit today about developing that community of education researchers. Those would be two things. Anything else, Yvonne, as far as? No, I think we're good. I will be presenting out there as well. So I will make sure to stop by and check out your guys' presentation. I'm looking forward to it. Again, thank you guys so much for your time and for coming on here today. And I look forward to interacting with you guys more as we try to learn our way through some form of educational research. Sure. Well, Scott, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity, number one. I think the more we talk about it, the more folks will be able to engage it. And kudos to you for Coming back to academia, and even though you're not maybe sold out 100% on education research, hopefully over time, that'll be something you're more comfortable with, much like all of us, right? When we started our EDD or PhD, initially, you're like, oh my goodness. But then once you start engaging it, it becomes much more accessible and enjoyable. So hopefully that's true for you, but also for everybody else who's listening. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great experience. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.